Uh, I'm, my name's Dave Dorst. I'm the, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I look forward to meeting you maybe after the service. Uh, before I start the sermon, I would like to give just another little plug. Ladies, if you're on the fence about the women's retreat, you really, really should go. And as I understand, this is the last Sunday to sign up, but maybe you have till about Wednesday, October 1st, to, if you still need to get in word to CC. Uh, or call the church office, or whatever you need to do. Um, I'm going on, not the whole thing. I, I'm just going to drive up and communion for the leader's extension. Don't worry, I won't be there for most of it. But I encourage you. In between my junior and senior years of high school, back in the day, as they say, My family joined a large tour of the Holy Land all over Israel uh, with my dad and my uncle, who are both pastors, uh, leading the group. I don't know if you've been to Israel, but it's a fantastic experience, and I'm glad I was old enough to really appreciate it. Uh, Maybe not as much as I would now, but as much as me in high school. Uh, But seeing these places, the Dome of the Rock, where possibly, I mean, everything's alleged site of uh, where maybe Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, and the Wailing Wall, and then we we reenacted uh, Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River, and we floated on the Dead Sea, and so many amazing experiences and places. But the highlight of the trip for me was being in what they call the Garden Tomb. Now, there's several sites. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre might be where Jesus was buried, but the Garden Tomb seemed to me to be a more likely site. I don't know about the geography, but it it felt like it. And uh, if you've seen pictures. Um, and not far from that spot is a cliff face that actually looks like a skull. That's not my picture. I just grabbed it off the internet, but maybe as you... I don't have a pointer, but kind of the bottom right... Oh, yes, I do. (laughs) You see the skull. And that's where they tell the tourists that that's where Jesus was crucified. Golgotha is the name that the gospel accounts give this hill. And they tell us that it means place of a skull. And possibly it's because it, it resembled a skull, but also possibly just because that's where men went to die or because there were many graves. Um, we don't know. And I used to get confused about the name. I don't know about you, because all those uh, great Southern Baptist hymns all call it Calvary, right? I thought it was Golgotha. And I found out that that's the Latin is Calvarium, and from which we get Calvary. Uh, both my sons are taking Latin, so I'm trying to speak their language. But regardless of what it's called or where it's located, it is the place where Jesus was crucified. An undeniable historic fact, even if you're not counting the Scriptures, attested in multiple sources outside of the Scriptures. And it's the place where for Christians, the central event in all of human history happened. It's the culmination of Jesus' life 
and mission, the high point of his humiliation, as we call it, allowing his enemies to have power over him. We just called the cross the wonderful cross. And we call the day that he died Good Friday. And we celebrate it, even as we are appalled by it. And maybe we're crazy. Maybe we have placed our hope in something that is empty and sadly misguided. Nothing but a historical footnote. Richard Dawkins talks about the Christian view of the cross in his book, The God Delusion. New Testament theology adds a new injustice, topped off by a new sadomasochism, whose viciousness even the Old Testament barely succeeds. It is, when you think about it, remarkable that a religion should adopt an instrument of torture and execution as its sacred symbol. The theology and punishment theory behind it is even worse. And Richard Dawkins is right, in a sense, that if you're making up a new religion, maybe you'd want to start with a God who doesn't take the form of a peasant, among, among a tribe that has been conquered by the true world powers, Rome. And your God would not be able to be killed, I would think. He certainly wouldn't have him naked, and bleeding, dying on a cross, the most cursed and despised way to die. And I think you would figure out a way for your followers of this new religion to do good things, to earn salvation, like every other religion out there. You wouldn't leave that to God to make salvation happen for them. So Dawkins and others can question us, mock our beliefs for believing something so preposterous. But as we read today's passage, we'll see that we are not the only ones to be mocked for what happened on Golgotha. So turn with me as we are getting close to the end of our series in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 27 through 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, 
They offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And there they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord God, give us wisdom as we study this passage of Scripture. Help us to understand what you were doing and why Jesus was silent and submitted to the cross. Thank you for this time. Open our ears and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I was working through this text, I realized I want to break it down, analyze, uh, kind of take big chunks. I haven't done it as I usually break it up into three points. There are three points, but I want to look at three areas that kind of help us to analyze this passage well. It's going to teach us as we go. And, And the first is just an observation that this is really a brilliantly written I mean, all the scriptures are inspired by God, but let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, There's a very compelling literary device that Matthew uses in the first few verses that we have, verses 27 through 31. Um, I didn't point this out. I got this from uh, some scholars named Lutz and Allison. It's called a chiasm. And you've probably seen one before. Uh, They pop up in the Psalms and other places. Uh, I was an English teacher in a different life, so I enjoy this stuff. Um, And maybe you do. It looks like this, and you've got it in your bulletin. I've got it up on the PowerPoint here. But a chiasm is, is helping you see how it parallels. And so you see... The beginning and the end parallel each other, where the soldiers lead Jesus into the headquarters and they exit at the end. All right, that makes sense. But then as you go further into the action, verse 28 and 31a is that they they strip him of his clothes and put a robe on him. And then the parallel later is that they strip the robe back, put his clothes back on. And then in 29a and 30, you have the parallel of, of something happening to his head and, and kind of the assault that uh, the thorns on his head and the reed in his hand. 
parallels then. They strike him with the reed. And then the middle of the chiasm is when the soldiers kneel down and, and mockingly say, Hail, King of the Jews. So that's a neat thing. Maybe the more literary among us really enjoy that. But is that important? Why, why am I pointing this out? And, and I just want to, chiastic structures point to something. And they culminate in the middle point. And it's, it's, you can see the point there. And even, the, even though the soldiers are mocking and don't really mean it, Matthew is highlighting what they do to kneel before him and declare him king. I mean, the soldiers are, are laughing as they dress up Jesus, right, in the scarlet robe, and they give him the crown and the, the scepter, and they're just mocking him. And then later, everyone else looks at the sign over his head, and they join in on this joke. This guy, this shell of a man by this point, thinks he's the king of the Jews. But they have unknowingly uttered the profound truth that Matthew won't let us miss because the text points to it and it's written right above Jesus' head. He's the king. The second area, you really can't understand this text. You can't get far in it until you understand that it's packed with prophecies being fulfilled. Prophecies that were written up to a thousand years before these events. Sometimes as you're reading the Gospels especially, you wonder why did they include some of these details. Well, take a look. Verse 34, they offer Jesus wine with gall. I've listed out in, your, in, in the outline, but Psalm 69, 21, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. In verse 35, the soldiers divide his garments by casting lots. This is an exact fulfillment of Psalm 22:18 that says, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Isaiah 53.12 says he was numbered with the transgressors, which is literally fulfilled as he is hung between two thieves in verse 38. Verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their head. Do you see that phrase? And then as you look at Psalm 22, 6b and 7, Scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Look at the detail. And finally, the, the chief priests taunt in verse 43. Compare how closely worded it is to Psalm 22, 8. The priests say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. And they're mocking Psalm 22 says, He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, the most vital link between Christ's crucifixion and Psalm 22 is going to be in the next passage, next week's sermon. 
But just to see that the Holy Spirit had inspired men like David and Isaiah to record words that they didn't fully understand in terms of their scope and meaning. One by one, they fall into place. I mean, Jesus' life fulfilled hundreds of Old Testament prophecies. But just here in these 18 verses, prophecies are fulfilled left and right, none of which Jesus had control over. And the third, the third thing that you see as you work through this text, and I've already telegraphed it with the children's prayer, is the insults. How many of you have seen, uh, I have to work Shakespeare in because I already said I'm an English major, an English teacher. How many of you have seen the Shakespearean insult kit? It's not a kit, it's a, it's a website. and you, Yeah, you've seen this. There's three columns and it's all... Uh, put-downs that Shakespeare used, and so very fancy words. And, and the fun is to mix and match the different columns. And so you pick an adjective from the first column, an adjective from the second, a noun from the third. And so you come up with things like, you impertinent pox-marked footlicker, or you roguish sheep-biting miscreant. And it just sounds so profound as you're mocking. So I had to bring a little levity in the middle of all of this. But it's human nature to mock others, to put them down. There's viciousness inside of us that takes pleasure in demeaning others, isn't there? For some sick, twisted reason, it makes us feel better about ourselves. And Matthew records five groups of people surrounding Jesus, who choose this time to heap up on the abuses. I mean, look at the timing. They see this beaten, bloody, broken man who's being held to a wooden pole by nails. Can't fight back at all. They choose to heap on the abuse, to add insult to injury. So the first group I've already talked about, the soldiers and their their brutal sport with Jesus in the first five verses. The second, you may have skipped over, but Pilate's sign in verse 37, King of the Jews. The other Gospels tell us that it was written in uh, three languages, Greek, Latin, Aramaic, to just try to get the widest audience that everyone could see it, understand it. The sign is mocking the charge against him. I mean, that's what they put over the criminal's head is what he was charged with. And this is a mockery of, of what they claim, they say he's claimed to be the king. And what kind of king is completely helpless to save himself? And then you have the crowd. And in verse 40, they say, you who would destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Right? They mock him for saying that he could rebuild the temple in three days. I mean, how, how are you going to accomplish that huge task, Jesus? You can't even get off the cross. You're too weak. 
And of course, they've misunderstood that the temple he meant was his body. Destroyed on Friday, raised on Sunday. Then verses 41 through 43, the fourth group. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. What are they saying? They're saying, we'd, we'd love to believe this guy. We'd love to think that he's the Messiah, but we can't. Only if he'd save himself. Which, of course, they don't really mean. And finally, the thieves in verse 44. I think most of us remember Luke's story. For some reason, Matthew doesn't record the story of one of the thieves essentially repenting and believing in Jesus. Matthew simply records that they join in reviling Jesus despite the fact that they're in the exact same position that he is. You don't see people insulting them. All the abuses to Jesus. And Matthew seems to be saying every part of Jerusalem society, respectable and not so respectable, have contempt for this Jewish Messiah. So what's Jesus' response? I mean, I think it would have been very easy, understandable for him to calmly explain to everyone who was muttering these insults that there would be quite the payback someday. That as a matter of fact, he was and is the king of the universe. And to paraphrase Bill Cosby, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. He could give them a peek into the final judgment and how they would be begging for mercy on that great and final day. That's what I would have done. But 1 Peter 2.23 summarizes his response. When they had hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that's the key here. Jesus is not just dying with dignity, although he is. He's not just resigned that there's nothing he can do, and he's just giving up. No, he's actively submitting to God's plan. And even more astonishing, Luke tells us that Jesus meets their abuse by saying, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Now there's only one person in this passage who is not mocking Jesus. The man who carries his cross, Simon of Cyrene. 
When you think about all that Jesus had endured in physical torture so far, the flogging with whips. I didn't talk about that much. I was kind of tacked on to last week's uh, passage. But whips that had glass and stone embedded in them. And often flogging would kill a man alone. But throw in the beatings, the punches, the thorns. Not to mention, Jesus hasn't slept. And so then you throw the cross on his back, even if it's just, as most of the commentaries said, just the horizontal beam. And make him walk maybe a mile out of town. Can't do it. He stumbles. And Simon is standing in the crowd, and apparently the Roman soldiers can compel anyone they want. So they grab Simon, press him into service, probably unwillingly. And I thought it was fascinating that his name is Simon. Because the other Simon, Simon Peter, has just denied the Lord and abandoned him when it was time to follow Jesus. This Simon walks with Jesus, helping him bear his load. Mark 15, 21 gives us a little detail about Simon, that his children's names are Alexander and Rufus. Why would he give us that detail? I mean, who, who cares what his kids' names are? Unless the original readers of the gospel would recognize them. It seems most likely that Simon or his children and his family became believers and became part of the church. And so there's that note, and, and they would hear that and say, I know those guys. But in this passage, you're either mocking Jesus or you're carrying his cross. There's no in-between neutrality. There's no polite indifference. It's black and white. Choose to scorn and hate him or choose to identify with him, to walk with him. Jesus has already taught in Matthew that his followers must carry a cross. And Simon is the visual picture of that. Now, of course, if Jesus was mocked and scorned, we should expect nothing less as his followers. Please do not be surprised when people laugh at your simple faith and how naive you are. They call you a Bible thumper or self-righteous, narrow-minded, whatever way they're going to ridicule you. Stand strong. Remind yourself that that kind of mockery is nothing compared to what Jesus endured. And remember Psalm 1.1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers.
in the 19, or sorry, 1870s, way back, there was a man named Shamel who commanded a resistance group, a guerrilla army, you could call it, that was fighting against the Caesarist regime in Russia. His camp was set up. They had families of all the men who were fighting with him. The morale, the organization of the camp was slowly breaking down and a rash of thefts occurred. So Shamel had to lay down the law and take control as the leader. He had to announce that there was a penalty for stealing. A hundred lashes. And before long, the first thief was brought before him. It was Shamel's own mother who had been caught. And so he shut himself in his tent for three days because he knew that he had to keep his law and punish lawbreakers or else no one would respect those laws. But who could bear to order his own mother be given a hundred lashes? And when he finally appeared, he was resolute. He had made his decision. He said that she was to be given the full punishment. But after the first three lashes, he removed his mother and he placed himself where she had been and ordered that they continue the whipping on his back. You see, Shamel had figured out how to keep the requirements of his law, but also to keep the requirements of his love, though it cost him dearly. And that is what God the Father accomplished through the death of his Son, through the cross, Sin must be paid for with death. And God, as the perfect judge, must punish sin. Scriptures say He will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. But God has done the most amazing thing in standing in our place, sending Jesus to take our punishment for us. Quoting from two of the songs that we sang earlier. Yet by your wounds our salvation has come. Yet by your suffering our freedom is won. And then the other one, the wrath of God that I deserved is poured out on the innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am his forever. Good job, whoever picks the songs. Such a coincidence. Actually, I was, I was uh, speaking at Patrick Henry and I sang a little Johnny Cash, so they were probably cringing, hoping I wasn't going to sing. In conclusion, let me read you something from J.C. Ryle. Maybe close your eyes uh, just to hear. He says it way better than I could. Speaking of Jesus, of course, was he flogged? 
It was done so that by his wounds we are healed. Was he condemned, though innocent? It was done so that we might be acquitted, though guilty. Did he wear a crown of thorns? It was done so that we might wear the crown of glory. Was he stripped of his clothes? It was done so that we might be clothed in everlasting righteousness. Was he mocked and reviled? It was done so that we might be honored and blessed. Was he reckoned a criminal and counted among those who have done wrong? It was done so that we might be reckoned innocent and declared free from all sin. Was he declared unable to save himself? It was so that he might be able to save others to the uttermost. Did he die at last? And that, the most painful and disgraceful death, it was done so that we might live forevermore and be exalted to the highest glory. Jesus bore our shame and took our punishment in every way so that we would stand innocent and right before God the Father. The mockery and insults that Jesus endured for submitting to death will turn into something else. In heaven, all the redeemed will be praising Him and thanking Him with every fiber of our being for dying in our place. And we don't have to wait for that day, do we? We praise and thank Him now for the glory of who He is and what He has done for us. Amen. Let's take some time to pray silently and then I'll close this. Lord Jesus, thank you for being obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you that just taking on the form of a human being, of a man, was humiliation enough from the perfection of heaven. You came and you suffered and your life was suffering and certainly the hours leading up to your death were suffering. And as the crowd and everyone around you insulted you, mocked you, beat you, you took it. Jesus, thank you. 
that you took it on our account, in our place. You could have easily come off that cross. You could have easily stopped. Pilate, Caiaphas, any step along the way, you could have gone free. But you knew God's plan, the Father's plan for you to die in our place. And we praise you that you did. And we embrace your love for us that you would be our substitute. Lord, may we live our lives in thankfulness, in that same humility. Lord, if there's any here who don't know you, I pray that you would break through the walls of unbelief. They've heard the gospel this morning. I pray that they would embrace it. Read the scriptures deeply. God, thank you for this scripture, for all of Matthew as we've worked through your life. May we stand in awe once again. So we lift all these thoughts, prayers, praises to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song of doxology from Romans 11. Hear the benediction from Jude. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Amen.